Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the Indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio, 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. Good evening. I'd like to begin by acknowledging we are meeting on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We acknowledge the elders past, present and in the generations to come. We acknowledge that this land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name is Margaret Sinclair of the Refugee Action Collective. Tonight, this forum is focused on how we can break the bipartisan support for offshore processing. Ever since Julia Gillard reopened offshore processing on Manus Island in 2012, there has been bipartisan support to send some people to either Manus or Nauru if they arrived by boat. Last week, there were commemorations around the country remembering the decision that Kevin Rudd made in 2013 that anyone arriving by boat after the 19th of July 2013 would never settle in Australia. Despite the announcement, 1,414 people from the same boats as those sent to Manus and Nauru were allowed into Australia to become part of the legacy caseload and to apply for asylum while living in the community on bridging visas. Last week, Kevin Rudd tweeted, July 2013 agreement with PNG was for one year only. Refugees should have been resettled in Oz by Abbott slash Turnbull three years ago. Despite this reimagining and attempt at rewriting history, Shadow Minister for Immigration Shane Newman put out a statement a day later, which reads in part, Labor believes in strong borders, offshore processing, regional resettlement and vote turnbacks. At this point, I'd just like to remind everyone in the room, it's useful to remember that in 2007, during the election campaign, Kevin Rudd openly declared his intention of closing down Manus and Nauru, and he was elected. In 2013, after adopting a hardline approach, Labor lost the election, and Bill Shorten, in continuing a hardline stance, lost the 2016 election as well. This evening, we will be discussing how the bipartisan support for offshore processing can be broken. There'll be time for questions afterwards, but on, on our panel tonight, I'm proud to introduce 
Jed Carney, <coughs> President of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Michelle O'Neill, State Secretary of Textile Clothing and Footwear Union of Australia, Aaron Milvaganam, Tamil Refugee and Finance Sector Union Organiser, and Lucy Honan, who's with the Refugee Action Collective and Teachers for Refugees. But before we have our first speaker, Sally McManus, the Secretary of the ACTU, sent us a message for tonight which goes as follows. Statement of support from Sally McManus. Australia should treat asylum seekers and refugees with compassion, dignity and respect and welcome them to our country. They are among the world's most vulnerable people and the recent developments in Syria show clearly the dire circumstances that caused them to flee. As a signatory to the United Nations Convention on Refugees, Australia has an obligation to protect the human rights of all asylum seekers and refugees arriving in Australia, regardless of the manner in which they arrived and their country of origin. We have to remember, refugees are not the enemy. The enemy are the forces that drive conflict and poverty as such, we have a responsibility to take on a greater number of refugees than we currently do. As a wealthy industrial country, our refugee intake is shameful. In 2016, Australia's intake of refugees was ranked 46th in the world on the basis of GDP. That is not good enough. We have a responsibility to share more of our wealth with those most in need. Our current refugee and asylum seeker policies have turned our country into a poster child for racists and have provided right-wing governments throughout the world with a model to copy the situation in the offshore detention centres which has led to deaths either through physical attacks or medical neglect. The government's own MOSRI report reveals the extent of physical and sexual abuse and mental harm that refugees are subject to in Nauru and Manus. Not only that, but we know that hundreds of children are held in mandatory detention with no pathway of protection or settlement. The secrecy which surrounds these detention centres threatens our democracy and justice system by denying both the refugees and those who work there with the right to speak about what they have seen and holding the private contractors and the government responsible. The ACTU calls for the detention centres on Manus and Nauru and any other offshore detention centre to be closed. Unless this is done, history will judge us harshly for all of our talk of being the land of the fair go, there is nothing fair about our treatment of refugees. We call on our politicians to show leadership and to reframe the national debate about refugees and asylum seekers, explaining that the majority of people who have entered Australia by boat seeking asylum have been found to need protection from persecution, a gesture which would show our commitment to humanity. Unions must play a role in changing the national debate
through countering misleading information spread about refugees. Now more than ever, given the attacks we are under, we must stand together and fight against those who want to divide us. Just like our workplace laws, we must change the rules on asylum seekers. Thank you. Our first speaker tonight is Jed Carney. Please make her welcome. Thanks very much. And um, thanks for having me tonight. And I bring apologies from Sally, but it's great that we could hear firsthand that she is 100% supportive of what is a really good position by the ACTU on refugees. And I know I look around the room and I know that I've spoken to you many, many of you before, and that's something that I want to talk about a little bit later. But I too, before I go ahead, would like to acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Now going into last ACTU Congress, it was right at a very um, heady time around the debate of refugees when we all know the, the really, I guess, I can only say it's an evil position um, on, on the situation with offshore detention, with turning back boats, with the whole refugee debate and vilifying people so desperate for hope and desperate to find safety. And we went into the ACTU Congress with a fairly strong policy that I was already quite pleased with and quite proud of as the President. And we came out of the ACTU Congress with the most amazingly wonderful policy that the unions supported. They strengthened it, they changed it, they made it even better. And I have to acknowledge that a lot of that was to the hard work of the wonderful woman, Michelle Neal, who um, is an amazing inspiration and um, tireless fighter for what is, we know what is right with the world, or wrong with the world to make it right, including refugees. And Michelle and others put in a great deal of time at the ACTU Congress. <coughs> now, I'm not going to pretend that a well-written policy will change the world, because we know that it doesn't. It's like, you know, you can pass a million resolutions in this room and feel good about it when you walk out. But if it's not matched with actions and uh, with real change, then policy is nothing more really than just words on a piece of paper. And I'm not going to pretend that the entire trade union movement has always done the right thing by refugee policy. But what that policy does do is it gives me the opportunity to spread the word as far and wide as I possibly can to say that the ACTU, Executive and Congress has this position and this is why. And I can say it without fear of retribution and without fear of anyone behind me saying I am wrong. So from that perspective, I'm incredibly proud of the ACTU's position. We use that policy along with really wonderful people in Labor for Refugees, and I know Robin's here, to work really hard to try and influence the ALP platform at the conference, at the last conference. And we did work very, very hard at that. And I know many of us came away, although there were changes, I've got to say we did shift the platform a long way, and Michelle may be able to speak a little more about that. But of course, some really critical and crucial issues uh, were not signed off on, and that was disappointing, and for some devastating, after all the hard work. 
And we can see by the statement that Margaret read out from Shane Newman, wasn't it? No, 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 the, the, the Shane Newman in your introduction. That there's still a long, long way to go with that. Basically, as you know, the issues are the turnbacks, the boat turnbacks, it's terrible offshore detention, the secrecy that is surrounding offshore detention, and a lot of the other outstanding issues. So, there's work to do. We've got a good policy, I know that. But there's still a lot of work to do with our own membership. Because a lot of people in trade unions, a lot of our members, unfortunately hold the views that have been so cleverly and so harshly and so firmly ingrained about refugees that it's incredibly difficult to shift them. And as Sally, Sally said in her opening statement, the ACTU has a responsibility with our union members to get out there and do that. You know, a lot of the people that hold those views live in areas where it's hard to get a job, where there's really highly entrenched youth unemployment. The schools are crowded and underfunded. The hospitals are crowded and underfunded. They cannot get public housing or affordable housing. They're told constantly that they are unsafe, that their safety is threatened. And a lot of all of that somehow very cleverly gets wrapped up into a fear of refugees. So we know that part of the solution and part of fixing that mindset is fixing those issues. There's, there's seats down the front, folk. I guess what I'm saying is, and I'm interested to hear your views on this, these are things that I'm putting out there from my perspective about how we break this deadlock, is that we have to actually seriously get rid of a neoliberal government that is smashing the social safety net and the social compact, that cares nothing about homelessness or affordable housing, that is stripping funding from schools and hospitals and constantly spreads a message vilifying people that they dream up and say are a threat to our safety. That has to be part of the answer. And we have to have government that is prepared to deal with those things so that people do not feel unsafe or that they can get a job, that they feel the social safety net is actually there and strong enough to support them. I think that's definitely a part of the answer. We have to, as Sally said, break the secrecy about the offshore detention centres. We have to make it possible for people to speak up about what's happening there without fear of retribution. Absolutely, that has to happen. We have to stop talking to each other about this. That's really hard. I know that. And I don't really know how we'd stop that. I know that every single person who's come along tonight wants to fix this problem. And I know they come along to lots of these things, and I know because I see your wonderful faces all the time out there tirelessly arguing and fighting for these things. But imagine if we had a plan, and I, and I say this from the ACT's perspective because I haven't implemented such a plan. If we had someone like yourselves and someone like Aaron and we went out into a workplace 
out in the eastern or the western suburbs of Melbourne, and we actually started to talk about these things. In the marginal seats in Queensland, where we know very bravely go out there, and bit by bit, we actually started to talk about these in places where it's really, really hard to talk about these things. Because we will not get bipartisan or political support for decent refugee policy while marginal seat land is opposed to decent policy. I'm, I'm just becoming sort of, uh, what do you say when you just, this, you can't have any other view but that, resigned. I'm becoming resigned to that fact. That until we actually do the work about getting this message out, stop talking to ourselves and start talking to the people who politicians unfortunately take notice of, then perhaps we're not going to be able to shift them. So that's another thing. That's the third thing. And then the last thing, I think, that we really have to think about is why have we come to this? What is the root cause analysis of this? And I must say that I'm inclined to agree with, and I can never say her name, and I apologise if anyone in the room knows that I've said it incorrectly, Shen Narayan Asami. Does anyone know who I mean? Shen. Shen will do. So some of you are familiar with her, what she's been saying. Is that really, you know, if you think about the absurd nature of this, is that we have made, or somebody has made, the neoliberal right wing of this country have made the entire, a lot of people in this country, not all of us, because there's a lot of good people, 68% of Labor voters, now I understand, but have made a crucial and critical group of people in this country terrified of a handful of people arriving by boat when there are hundreds of thousands of people coming into the country who are being exploited, who are being treated terribly, who are sinking below the radar as migrant workers. I just signed a petition for the NUW then. If anyone can, I'm giving it a plug. The NUW is doing some fantastic work with agricultural workers who are just treated abominably. You couldn't imagine how they have to work. And yet capital brings such, you know, brings them in, these poor people into the country by the hundreds of thousands and nobody blinks an eye. Nobody blinks an eye. They're clever. That is so clever, you've got to say, but it's really distressing. So from our perspective, I think we've really got to look at the social compact and how that's being attacked. We have to look at the laws around secrecy. We have to actually get out there and talk to the people who actually will make it safer for the politicians to change their views and to change their positions. And we have to look at our migration policy as a whole. The suggestion by Shen is we have humanitarian migration policy instead of a skills-based migration policy. It's interesting. I'm not saying that I'm 100% sold on that, but at least it's thinking outside the box. It's changed the debate. It's given a different narrative to the whole scenario. But I just know that we've got to get out there. I think from my perspective, the whole debate around migration, uh, the marginal seat land, secrecy and the social compact are the areas that we need to focus. That's from my perspective. I'm very happy to hear everybody else's views tonight. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jane.
going to um, take questions from the floor after all of the speakers have spoken. Um, but I'm very proud to uh, introduce Michelle O'Neill as our next speaker. Margaret, great to see you all here on a cold Melbourne night. And I also want to um, begin by paying all my respects to the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on tonight. Um, I want to acknowledge them, pay my respects to their elders, past and present. And it is a great honour to be talking to you tonight. Some of you I know, some of you I don't. And I should have caucused with Jeb, <laughs> which I didn't, uh, because some of the things, some of the conclusions we've come to are similar, but I don't think we'll be the only ones coming to that. So it's interesting hearing different perspectives, but also finding the bits that are, are, are sort of becoming crystal clear to us about what we need to do. And I really do want to focus on the challenge about how we break the bipartisan support for offshore detention tonight, which was the challenge that Lucy set us. And I, I want to say that for this battle uh, we face, it is an enormous battle and we should be under absolutely no illusions as to how difficult it is. We are living in a time of bipartisan cruelty where the sole objective of asylum seeker policy is deterrence. There is no longer a common view about humanity, about care, about thinking about our global responsibilities. And we've seen no change in that policy now over a number of years, even though what we've seen is, is violence, murder, sexual abuse of women, men, children, allegations of torture, medical neglect, including death, psychological and severe mental health damage, self-harm and suicide. So despite those facts being clear, there's no debate about those things all being known, understood, factual descriptions of what people in our offshore detention centres have faced and continue to face today. Despite those facts, we still have bipartisan support for a policy that locks people up, throws away the key and takes no responsibility for their lives and their future. And leaves them, of course, and perhaps this is the most devastating thing, leaves them without hope. And we've got a public that generally, despite some good recent statistics that I'll come back to, generally still when pushed, believe that we need increased security as a nation. And we have policies that say that not only does this somehow support the idea that we need and will get increased security, keeping those seeking asylum locked up in another country, we also have this cloak of secrecy sitting over the top of that, that somehow it's good public policy to not be transparent, to not be open and accountable about the daily experience and lives of those people that we actually, as a country, are responsible for. We have this stifling blanket of silence. 
and an absence of real oversight or intervention. And of course, this is a global phenomenon. This is not something that Australia is facing. In fact, we face a tiny, tiny, as you heard from Sally's statement, a tiny proportion of it. And as recently as in the last few weeks, or last week, I think, we've seen with the imminent so-called closure of Manus, the turning off of power, water, electricity, phones being cut off, blanket human rights abuses for those in our care as somehow an encouragement to have them even move into yet another Australian-owned and controlled transit centre, or in fact agree to go back to the very countries <coughs> which they fled to come here. And the obscene notion that we are somehow reliant on Donald Trump to provide a humane response. <laughs> and here, eight months later, after that hope, was given to those people, not one has been accepted for resettlement in the US. And as we've seen in the last week or so, this seems like an increasingly unlikely result. And then last week, well, what about the Department of Home Affairs? <laughs> so here we have the government's latest foray into convincing people that somehow there's a connection between those seeking asylum and refugees and the threats to our nation's security, which is a lie. But now we have Peter Dutton heading up a so-called super ministry that puts together immigration. Since when was immigration about Australian security? It was about building our nation. Look at this room. Look at the faces in this room throughout building this country. So immigration, border protection, the Australian Federal Police, and ASIO. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't trust Peter Dutton. <laughs> I don't trust Peter Dutton with one of those things. I don't trust him with two, let alone three, let alone four, let alone this somehow massive portfolio that he is um, already proving himself so unable, so incompetent to actually deliver any sort of effective or humane or fair policy with only one of them. And now he's got all fair. Four. And of course, this is really blatantly, there's no you know, dog whistles here, it's blatant. It's about linking asylum to threat. It's about saying that somehow you've got to put ASIO and the police and border protection together with refugees and asylum seekers and migrants because it's a threat to our country and our national security. And of course it's modelled on the UK Home Office. Sorry. And the UK Home Office most recently is famous for having set rejection targets for their staff. So that you actually get an incentive the more people that are rejected for asylum in that department. Meanwhile, Julie Bishop is out there convincing the world that we need and deserve a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. And uh, what of Labor? So the Labor Party, uh, well, Kevin Rudd's rewriting of history last week was breathtaking. Um, 
Richard Miles, we know, says it's absolutely critical that Australia be off the table in terms of asylum seekers being resettled here. And Bill Shorten confirming just yesterday that when pushed about whether Labor policy meant refugees would never ever settle in Australia, the quote, that's part of it, yes. It's a shameful, bipartisan approach. So what do we do? Well, I think we do have to have a really hard-nosed, strategic and focused response. It is the case that those people who peddle ignorance and fear can be beaten by those of us that speak the truth. But we can't beat them by speaking it to each other over and over again. Focus of our work has got to be on that of public opinion, not the opinion of politicians. Because we could read a million horrific quotes from the people I've spoken of already and many, many others of our politicians. They, unfortunately, for the majority of politicians in our country, they're followers, not leaders. And what they follow is public opinion. So our job is to shift it. And I know we all will keep doing it, but really, another meeting, another rally, another vigil in the seat of Melbourne. And as unions, we do have a role and a job as opinion shifters. We are one of the largest democratic movements. We are, in fact, the largest democratic movement in the country. And our job is to have the debate and change the minds of those amongst our own membership who have swallowed the story of fear. As Jed has said, it is the job of the union movement to turn that policy, to turn those statements, as great and strong as they are, into change in the hearts and minds and opinions of our members. Because if you change the hearts and minds and opinion of our members, you not only change their mind, you change their workmates' minds, you change their families' minds, their partners' minds, their kids' teachers' minds. We have a massive capacity to influence public opinion. And really one of the key things about that, I think, is something that many of you and we all know. It is about the human face of this. It is about telling the stories of people with names, stories, families, real people. Think about the example of Baby Asher. It's an interesting moment in the debate, isn't it? Um, and, and of course, I, I think we have a lot to learn from it because it galvanised people, but it also gave a face to a child and a name. And there was something very powerful, of course, about the vulnerability of a tiny child, but also something powerful about the name and knowing that this was a girl this was a baby. We knew a name. The other things, of course, that will change public opinion is not just the real faces and stories, but, of course, the reality of the cost of this. When I said hard-nosed, we have to be hard-nosed. How many people know we've spent $5 billion of Australian taxpayers' money building and keeping open offshore detention centres? $5 billion 
while we're told we can't afford to fully fund education, while we have health services that don't meet the needs of our kids and our grandparents and our parents. $5 billion. We should be talking about what that money could be spent on. How much better spent it could be in delivering to our community. And of course, the, the shocking statistics that I saw yesterday, that since 2009, 630 women have been killed in Australia by, by male violence. And at the same period, three Australians have been killed by terrorism. So these are the facts we need to talk about, campaign about. And I do end up in some of the same places, not surprisingly, as Jed. I do absolutely believe we can win this. But of course it is not just a little issue. I, we haven't got time tonight, but we all know the shift towards a more racist, a more blatantly racist country that we are witnessing in front of our eyes. We cannot tackle asylum seekers and refugees and their rights without tackling racism. And I do think that we have to focus our energy. We can't do everything at once. And I think a campaign that is about targeting marginal seats and shifting public opinion in marginal seats is critical to winning bipartisan support. Not every seat in the country, but let's really define and refine our effort. I've mentioned the work we've got to do with our own members. Stop reconvincing the converted. Popularise some of the arguments. Appeal in some case to self-interest in terms of issues like the cost. But of course, I also think that we have to put this whole debate in the fight, the struggle for a different and fairer and better society. Because this is a fight for the rights of those people locked up in Manus and Nauru and those still facing either an uncertain future or now 7,000 people facing possible deportation here in Australia because they haven't had their asylum seeker cases processed. It is a debate, comrades, about winning and fighting for a better world. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Margaret. It is going to be really hard to match the two good speakers. I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri elders past and present. 
I would like to thank the organizers for inviting me to share my experience as a refugee and my thoughts on how we can get the how we can break the, the bipartisan support for this uh, cruel policy uh, towards refugees. I came to this country as a refugee back in 1997. My journey to Australia wasn't easy and the decision to leave my homeland uh, wasn't an easy one. I'm from a small coastal village called Nagarkovil uh, in the Tamil homeland uh, in northern Sri Lanka. Uh, it's a fishing village. On 22nd of September 1995, my school was bombed by the Sri Lankan army in which my own brother was cut in half. Uh, three of my cousins were also murdered on that day. I fled my village, lived in a refugee camp in the de facto Tamil state. And then after 16 months of being in the refugee camp, I fled and came to Australia. I came to Australia despite knowing that many of my villagers fled Sri Lanka and, and died on their way to European countries. After three months of being in detention centre, I came to Melbourne and lived in the community for over three and a half years without the support of my parents. And then in mid-2000, I was admitted in Monash Medical Center for severe depression. This is when the trade union movement um, played a big role in, in my life. There was a trade unionist uh, in Dandenong from the Labour Party uh, who got so many community uh, groups together, uh, got their school involved and brought my parents into Australia and things changed better for me. In 2001, this is under the, the Howe era, I was really uh, frustrated with the way the Howard government was uh, treating uh, refugees, so I decided to join the Labour Party. Back then, I think people joined the Labour Party when they were frustrated with the Liberals. I don't think that's the case nowadays. So I joined the Labour Party uh, in 2002 and maintained my membership for another seven years. At first, I really didn't know what I was signing on to. I was walking past uh, John Pandasopoulos' uh, office. Um, I asked him, you know, how do I bring change to refugees' lives? And he gave me the LP membership form. Um, I'm not sure whether that's called brand stacking, but I think closer to it. I maintained my membership for uh, another seven years till 2009. But in that seven years, I came to know about the, the union movement through many members within the Labour Party. It is through them I understood uh, how the union movement played an important role uh, in building social movements. It is through them I understood uh, the changes 
the union movement brought uh, to the lives of working people in Australia. And in the meantime, I was studying at Monash University. I was involved in campaigns against uh, voluntary student unionism. And, uh, and I was working in a contact centre uh, and I was a union delegate uh, for finance sector union. But in 2009, I resigned my Labour Party, I resigned from the Labour Party because of the way the Labour Party executive was supporting the Rajapaksa regime in Sri Lanka. In 2009, you know, in 2007, when, you know, there was a huge movement in support of refugees, we had real leadership uh, provided by the, the Labour Party, but that went backwards in 2009 and, and we failed to show true leadership. You know, rather than uh, speaking in support of the refugees who were fleeing the genocidal Rajapaksha regime, we were siding with the Rajapaksha regime to help them hide their crimes. So in disgust, I resigned uh, from the Labour Party I became a union organizer uh, with uh, Finance Sector Union. I also founded an organization called uh, Tamil Refugee Council. I'm still finding it very hard to understand why the Labour Party leadership at that time couldn't openly claim that Tamils were fleeing Sri Lanka because of the war. The corrupt leadership part of that Labour Party executive played into the hands of the Sri Lankan government lobbyists. They gave financial support. Bob Carr, at the end of 2013, threatened human rights groups from speaking out against the Rajapaksha regime. And they attacked Tamil refugees uh, fleeing Sri Lanka and created fear in our community, not just in the Tamil refugee community, but within the Tamil community using the security agencies. Now we had the enhanced screening process, deportations of over 1,500 Tamil asylum seekers, negative security assessment, and they left the Liberal government to take the issue to a whole new level, where, like Jed and uh, Michelle mentioned, torture of children, force adults to commit suicide, separate families so that they will never again unite, deny basic rights for refugees in the community, talk back votes, allow people to suffer on Nauru and Manus. We have three men in Willowwood and Maita who have been in detention for over eight years and they continue to face indefinite detention. They have seen five prime ministers. This cruelty must come to an end. We need to break the bipartisan support. The reluctant supporters of refugees in the union movement should draw inspiration from the Let Them Stay campaign in which workers came together to stop state-sponsored human smuggling. That's what it is. It's a state-sponsored human smuggling. And the labor movement in Australia should draw inspiration from Jeremy Corbyn's recent election campaign as well. He provided true leadership. 
labor movement has always stood with the most vulnerable in society. Let's provide the leadership that is needed. Thank you. Lucy Honan, who's with the Refugee Action Collective and Teachers for Refugees. Thanks very much to the previous speakers for coming and having this discussion um, for some of us once again. Um, I guess I, I, I do think it, it's really important for us to discuss this with each other. Um, very important to discuss it with other people as well, but I think the consequences of getting this question right are pretty huge um, because breaking the bipartisan support, I think we can all agree, is such a, a linchpin to, um, to solving this problem um, of, of offshore detention and the entire deterrence project in Australia. Um, I wanted to start with can labour change, um, and I guess that's where um, Aaron was ending. Yes, it can, and yes, it has, and I think Jeremy Corbyn is a good um, example to look at. Um, Kevin 07, another good example to look at. Um, it makes a difference. You know, in England, when you have the labour opposition, when, you know, it, uh, Blairism in the kind of extreme right wing that we have seen in Australia so recently, shifting to, you have an opposition leader who's speaking to tens of thousands of people at refugee rallies saying, open the borders, those people in the, in the jungle in Calais should be welcomed here. That makes it a huge difference. If you can imagine, we had the, um, the leader of the opposition saying something similar to that, how, it, how hugely that would change the debate. Um, and yes, we have seen Kevin 07. He is responsible for reopening offshore detention. He is responsible, and the Labor Party is responsible for some of the biggest crimes um, of detention and refugee deterrence. But in 2007, Kevin Rudd campaigned on the basis of closing the offshore camps, setting a limit on detention, ending temporary protection visas. Um, and I think there are a lot of people who, who, for whom that question of temporary protection visas, even though it is the slimmest, the tiniest difference that remains between the policies between the two parties, it is an important, a very important difference um, that we need to hold on to and crack open further. More recently, though, we don't have to go that far back. We've seen the pledge um, of Labor to vote against the lifetime ban on refugees who came by boat. Um, we've seen Labor Party committed to vote against the racist citizenship changes that the Liberal Party has um, proposed and they are still committed to ending temporary protection visas. It was very important for me and for Teachers for Refugees, for example, to see the state Labor Premiers come out in favour of the Let Them Stay campaign because while we were defying you know, our, our principles and in fact the state government to wear t-shirts into work that say close the camps, to have state Premiers saying yes, I agree with you, it was very important for the movement um, and very important for those kind of workplace changes and discussions that, um, that Jen and Michelle were talking about. So yes, they can change and yes, it matters that they do and yes, it's important that we get this right. So how, how does it happen? How can we do this? How can we make a conscious effort to push, to push Labor um, and the Labor leadership to change? Three things that I want to talk about, um, and they have been mentioned, all three of them have been mentioned already, but I, I guess I have a slightly different take on them. One is public opinion, the second is pressure, and the third is politics. So to start with public opinion, others have mentioned public opinion, but I think it's important for us to really um, 
to take stock of the fact that we have set out to shift public opinion and we have actually, to a large extent, achieved that. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that we were in an extraordinary minority. That To say that we wanted to bring the refugees to Australia was, um, was, was a big, it was a, radical, um, it was a radical question. Even around the Let Them Stay campaign in 2016, when we were saying, we, we call for the 267 refugees who are here for medical reasons, we're calling on them to stay. I remember conversations with people in the refugee movement saying, do you think it's possible that we, we can lift the demand to bring them here as well? Do you think it would be going too far to raise that demand? Now, we have raised the demand. And as others have said, not only is the majority of popular opinion in support of that demand, in support of bringing the refugees from Manus and Nauru to Australia, it is really important that the majority of Labor voters, Labor supporters support that demand as well. So we have gone out, out, of, out of our way to shift public opinion and we've achieved that. And I, I, I disagree that the, the rallies, the vigils, the, um, the actions don't matter. I think it's because we have been relentless in those things, relentlessly going out um, and having the snap actions, being responsive. Every time there is a new outrage, making sure that we mobilise. Okay, we may only be able to mobilise in the seat of Melbourne, but at least we were there on the streets the day that somebody was killed or that somebody you know, that some new atrocity occurred. I think that's really important because that's kept it in the press and it's kept it as a question of outrage. We have been the opposition when the Labor leadership has not been the opposition. Um, and I think it is also important, and, and why it has been important, is because the, the, there is a strain of argument within the Labor leadership that says that we have no choice we had to support offshore detention, we had to chase the votes to the right because that's where our membership is. So to shift that and to say actually that is not where your membership is, that is so far away from what your membership is right now, it's not funny, has been really important. It kicks out that little ledge of dishonesty and I think it always was dishonesty that that's the reason that the Labor leadership were there. But it kicks it out and says okay, they're not there now. So you have to move because they're not there. Um, I think... How, how did we get there? I, I, I think, as I mentioned before, the mobilisations have been important, but I think one really important element of it is that the refugee movement and the refugee action collectives around um, the country has had a very conscious effort to do exactly the things that Jed was talking about at the beginning, which is not just talking to each other, which I agree is, you know, I, I said at the start, I think is really important, but we have made a conscious effort to go out and speak to new groups of people. Um, so Teachers for Refugees, it came out of the Refugee, Collective, Re Refugee Action Collective, a group of teachers who said we want to take this into workplaces. We see teachers as a group of workers who are very, um, very persuasive individuals and they've got a connection to a lot of different people. It makes a difference if they take a stand on this issue. So we wore the Teachers for Refugees, closed the camps, bring them here t-shirts into work. Hundreds, sorry, thousands of teachers have done that in Victoria um, and New South Wales. You know, in, in acts of, of, of quite serious defiance, putting the, um, putting the photos online and so on. And I think that's been very important to shift public opinion, but it hasn't just been teachers, nurses. And I know the Nurses' Union is running a pretty relentless line themselves in their own magazine. My mum is a nurse and I'm constantly reading The Lamp. Um, and there is always something in there about nurses and nurses 
the, the reason that refugee rights is important for nurses, the um, Whistleblower Act, the fact that you, nurses are working alongside refugees, the fact that nurses work with refugees, those questions are important and the argument being taken up by the union membership and union leadership to win new groups of people to this question has been, has been important. Um, MUA members taking a Palestinian co uh, comrade, a fellow worker around on smokos to different work sites. These sorts of things have been happening, but not just by magic. This has been the conscious effort of refugee activists to say, we need to shift public opinion, we need to reach out to Labor's base and shift them. And that's happening, and I think that's really important that that does keep happening. Um, I want to talk about pressure. Because while public opinion has shifted, I think there are a lot of us who can recognise that public opinion, while people support and, and, and say yes, they should be brought here, it can often be a very passive support. So it comes out in an opinion poll, but it's definitely not something that people are voting on the basis of, which is, you know, in some ways a positive thing, um, you know, when it's a right-wing popular opinion poll, but for us... We want to mobilise people, we want to build that pressure. Um, and so that, that is about you know, mobilising the people, talking to the people who have been convinced and convincing them further to take action, to take a stand, to be defiant, to come to the rallies, to bring their workmates to the rallies, to bring their union flags to the rallies, that sort of thing. So I think those conversations of, of turning it up a notch, taking the civil disobedience a step further is important. Um, but I, I, I want to talk about pressure on labour because I think there is a point at which two different instincts within the refugee campaign conspire to let the labour leadership off the hook. So on the one hand, I think there are a lot of, a, a lot of people with the instinct that labour has just gone too far. They are so beyond the pale that it is not even worth talking to them anymore. They have betrayed us over and over again. We just need to walk away and leave them alone. And I think there's another strain or instinct within um, the labour movement that says that the, um, the conversations need to happen behind closed doors, they need to happen after the elections happen, they need to happen once things have moved on and once they have power, then we can start talking about, you know, coming out and supporting offshore detention. And I think both of those things kind of conspire to let Labor leadership off the hook for the entire, you know, until, until they're elected or until some further point down the road. I think we need to be really... Two more minutes, okay. I think we need to be really, really um, conscious about the fact that we want and we need Labor leaders breaking with the common line, with Shorten's line, and coming out and speaking against offshore detention at our rallies. We want Peter Khalil. You know, I've heard a million rumours about Peter Khalil supporting, you know, our position. He needs to come out and say it, and we need to invite him to come out and say it. Similarly with Andrew Giles, we've approached him to put our petition to Parliament. I think that's a really important thing, and we need to keep making those gestures, even when we are rebuffed, because the pressure needs to be on them. There is a conscious movement going out and fighting for this, and we expect them to take a position. And we're not going to let them off the hook, and we're not going to wait until after the election. We want it to happen now. I think that's different, different from being sectarian, different from shaming them, booing them, saying we're not talking to you anymore, and I think it's different from waiting. Um, I, but I, I, think that, I think that line is possible to walk, and I think it is important for us to get right if we do want to put this pressure on and break, break um, bipartisan support. The final thing that I wanted to say is about politics. Because, you know, I, I think what Jed and what others have said is that there, there is um, 
Um, there is a, a context of racism around everything um, going on with refugee politics that holds the bipartisan support in place. Terrorism and the Islamophobia, it is absolutely 100% connected to, um, connected to uh, refugee racism. I think so is the Aussie Jobs slogan. I think so is attacking migrant workers in general. And I think those sorts of kind of arguments that say there is a... Um, there is a finite amount of resources and we are losing those resources and, you know, it is me against you, it is those refugees hanging out in Indonesia and Malaysia who are after my job. Those sorts of politics, I think, really, really undermine our argument that if we close the camps, that is not a problem. If we don't tow the boats back, that is not a problem. You know, at the Labor conference, it was so impressive when, um, you know, Michelle was putting that motion and forced the issue, really public, not Michelle, the, um, when Labor, the, the um, Labor for Refugees group put the motion about boat turnbacks, the argument that came up from, um, from the pro-turnback side was there are 365,000 refugees in this region, what are we going to do? We can't take them all. I think we need to be prepared to say, yes, we can. We take 800,000 migrants a year, and that is not a problem. It is not a problem to take those migrants. People are welcome in this community. They are potential unionists. They are potential comrades. They help our community, and we are not in competition with them. Um, and I think those politics and that argument, we can't shy away from it. Um, it is, it's crucial to undermining that sense of fear that, that is the subtle undertone of everything that you know, holds, holds the offshore processing politics in place. Um, so I'm just going to end by saying I, I think that um, the rallies, like I said, the public opinion shifting is really important and all those different pieces of the puzzle are really important. Um, Refugee Action Collective is holding a rally Sunday, October 8th at 2pm. It would be great to see people there, but it would be great to see people there with union banners, with Labour for Refugees banners, with the whole breadth of the movement there in force and represented there.